Welcome to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, and this is one of the conference takeaway podcasts coming live into your ears from the end of Research Ed Blackpool 2019. Now, long-time listeners of the show may well have been with us 12 months ago for Research Ed Conference Takeaway Podcast Blackpool 2018, and you'll be pleased to know that I'm joined once again by my co-host from that event, Mr. Simon Cox. Hello, Simon. Hi, it's great to be back, Craig. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. Now, would it be fair to say, Simon, you're knackered? Will we go uh, that Yeah, one? yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think that would be fair, because obviously... Um, Myself and Phil, my colleague, are basically the main organisers of this conference, um, and it, it does take it out of you. Um, last year, as you mentioned, we did a, a conference takeaway, um, and we'd had a, a day with about 240 delegates last year, which, I, I'll be honest, at the time, we thought was fantastic. Mm. We didn't expect to get anything like that number. Um, when we went on sale this year, uh, it became really quickly apparent that it was going to go quite a lot bigger, uh, and we'd actually almost sold the same number of tickets as last year within about two weeks of, of them going on sale. Wow! Um, and and we we topped out at five forty in the end. So that's how many were with us today. Yeah, which was just it, it brings with it um, lots of um, additional problems that you might not think about ordinarily. So things like the um, th- things like the hiring of seats. So we had, <laughs> we had a huge problem in that the uh, obviously we're, we're a school. It was a normal school day on uh, Friday. Uh, and so we um, sent the kids home at 3.15 and had to turn a school into a conference venue. <laughs> so literally the sports hall had carpet put down. We had to hire in 550 chairs for the sports hall. It, it was huge. Um, uh, we won't be going any bigger, that's for sure. <laughs> but, 550 is, is the limit. Because that, that must be, I mean, we were talking, you reckon that's one of the biggest regional research heads? It has to be. I think it must be, yeah. I mean, the, the national one in London attracts sort of 1,200, 1,300. That one is absolutely huge. But aside from that, uh, I know Birmingham's a big one, uh, but I, I do think now that we are we are up there definitely with, with, with the biggest uh, regional conferences, which, considering our geography, sort of up here on the northwest coast, is, is pretty amazing. That's some effort, that, mate. And what did you put it down to? Was it just, like, Last year went down so well, kind of word of mouth, or did you do anything different? Just if people are listening, trying yeah. to organise an event, what, how have you pulled this off? Yeah, I'm, I wouldn't say we did anything particularly different. Obviously, we as a research school are doing a lot of work in Blackpool, um, uh, working with a lot of schools, doing a lot of um, building of, of teachers' knowledge of the evidence base and, and things like that. Uh, and I think that's really helped. Uh, we reckon um, just under half of the delegates today were from Blackpool schools. That's great. And when you consider, I mean, there were only eight secondaries in Blackpool. So when you consider that we had that many people yes. uh, with us, uh, that is is pretty phenomenal. Uh, but yeah, absolutely blown away by the by the, by the sheer weight of numbers today. Um, and yeah, I, as I said, we, we will not be going bigger um, because um, I don't think I was grey before today. But I think maybe I, I might be starting now. But we're back again next year, are we committing to that Absolutely, already? yeah. I, I, right now I will say yes. I'll probably regret it in the morning, but yes, we will be back. Fantastic. Right, well, um, before we, we dive into the takeaways from the actual conference, I wanted to start with a takeaway from the conference meal the night before. So 
Um, those of you who've spoken at Research Ed before may know that, that often um, if speakers have to travel, there's, there's, there's sometimes overnight accommodation, all the speakers get together and it's a great, it's a great event. Um, I absolutely love it. So I plonked myself down next to Anne Watson and Colin Foster and I thought I'm in for, I'm in for a great time here because just listening to them two was, was just insights were flying left, right and centre. Um, but then Colin, um, after Anne went to bed, me and Colin got chatting. And Colin's recently been to Japan with Jeff Wake, um, and Jeff's going to come on the on the podcast. It could all be kicking off with that one. I'm looking forward to that one already. And Colin was describing um, uh, about the board work in Japan, how they have these big long boards at the front of the classroom, and essentially the board work starts on the left hand side and tells the story of the lesson through. Um, across the boards and nothing gets rubbed out now there's a term for this there's a term for the a Japanese term for the planning of the board work and <laughs> I couldn't find the flipping term it's I, 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 in my head it's something like banshee but it's definitely not that but it's something people will be screaming at me here saying you, you should know this but anyway the board work and um, really really important and um, in a way that it's not as important certainly for my practice over here but the interesting twist on this side and see if mm. you like this right so Colin was saying one thing that really struck him when he saw the fact that this boardwork was permanent throughout the lesson meant that kids could uh, refer back to it. So when they were on like a more advanced problem, they could look back and relate it back to a, a problem mm -hmm. that they did earlier in the lesson. Where he says in the UK, particularly if teachers are using PowerPoint, where you've got a problems here, then you skip to the next slide and so on and so forth. Or if kids are using mini whiteboards, where they're doing the working out and then holding it up or whatever, then rubbing it off, mm -hmm. you don't have the same permanency, you don't have the same reference point to, to relate things back to. And he made the point that for something like variation theory, which is obviously all about comparisons and, and seeing mm -hmm. contrasts and similarities, if you don't have this bank of the examples that you've worked um, on during the lesson or the questions you've answered, if you don't have those to constantly refer back to, it's very hard to discern these relationships. What do you, what do you think of that? That sounds really interesting. It's not something I'd heard of before. Um, I, I think I've seen this sort of Japanese board work. I'm yes. pretty sure I've seen pictures of it on Twitter and, 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 and whatever and thought, oh, that, that looks amazing. But obviously with it being in Japanese, I didn't yes. understand yeah. what, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what the sort of thinking behind that was. I think that's really interesting because I think... Um, uh, especially with PowerPoint, I think there is a danger sometimes to see, um, you know, you, you flick through your slides yep. and you're on this journey through your slides yep. and, you, you know, you need to get to the last one because that's where the, the yes. lesson ends or whatever. Um, and I think sometimes that referring back doesn't happen enough uh, and, and it's really quite difficult to do. It is. And you can, like if a kid says, can you can you show me the previous example? You can go back. Yeah. But then you've not got the whole thing visible. You then can't see what the current slide and, is. And the other problem with that is that individual students within the class will have different bits Absolutely. they want to go back Absolutely. to. Uh, and you can't do it for all of them. No. Uh, you, it would be it would be, take you far too long. And like you say, you know, when you've got what one student wants upon the board, that means yes. you haven't got what another student wants upon the board. So I, I really like that. I mean, um, especially considering it, it would be relatively cheap to implement. Mm. You know, whiteboards, you know, they're, they're not they're not super cheap, but they're not staggeringly expensive. No. It would be quite easy to fit out a room um, with a load of whiteboards all over walls. I've seen schools actually who, who have, you know, they've, they've equipped rooms out with, with loads of whiteboards, but it tends to be uh, for students it's to work exactly. on rather than for the exactly. teacher to sort of tell the story of the lesson. Exactly. Uh, so it's no, nice, that, that, that it? sounds really interesting. And particularly yeah. the, um, I'd not really considered that to be a potential disadvantage of the mini whiteboards. The no. fact that 
it, it, I mean, one of their advantages is kids like writing on because they can wipe it away yeah. and, and so on. But obviously, that's the record of it gone. So, mm. yeah, just something, something to consider. And that was before the competitors even started. Well, there you go. So, so the, the insights so of was worthwhile. Yeah, the fantastic. Insert, absolutely right. So then the conference itself starts. Now, um, session one, you were you were a busy man, weren't you? You've got to organise this. Yeah, thing. I certainly was. So I, w I was running around making sure everyone was all right. So unfortunately, I, I did dip out in and out of one or two sessions, but I didn't really get too long to spend uh, with it within them. But I'll tell you what, you're not going to dip out here because I'm going to tell you about Mark McCourt and some of the stuff he's banging on about. Now, we know Mark and he's he's not one to kind of shy, shy away from controversy. He's and he, and he's, come, he's coming on the podcast cause, and I've got a few more questions to put to him after today's session. So, I, I'm going to pitch a few things to you here, Simon, and see, see, see what's uh, floating your boat here. So the first thing Mark opens up with is he says that when encountering a new idea, um, two things have to be true. First, that that new idea must be just beyond what students can understand, not too far beyond it that it seems so distant. And also it needs to feel true for students. They, they can't think immediately, well, no, I don't buy into that. That, that, seems, that seems nonsense. It's got to feel true and be just, just beyond what they, they can understand. So, so that, that, I, was, I was happy enough with that so far. Um, <laughs> and then he moved on to saying, and he often says this, Mark, he hates schemes of work that say, for example, year seven, week one, you're doing this. Year seven, week three, you're doing this because students are, are learning things at different rates. You can't pre-plan this in this far in advance and, and so on and so forth. But again, it's, and I know Mark's solution, his complete maths platform is kind of almost like an, an individualized scheme that kids work through in, in a sense, but it's, it's hard to do in practical terms, isn't it? It's really hard to do. Um, and, and I, 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 I'm on his side actually in terms of the you know everyone's got to do this lesson today because it doesn't always work like that and then you know you get to the end of the lesson and you think actually do you know what my class need another lesson on that yes but the scheme of work says I've got to move on to this and <laughs> I think bad. I think that's yeah. really dangerous yes um, the flip side of that however is that as a you know curriculum leader a senior leader you do need to have some feel that kids are moving through a scheme of learning and so. so that there's always that danger that you know you might end up stuck on fractions for a year because yes. they haven't fully got yes. it. So, so I can see both sides of that argument, but I personally I don't like schemes which say you must spend two lessons on this, you must spend three lessons on this. Um, for the same reason, I don't like. Um, I always remember uh, years ago um, when I was a second in the department, somebody said to me, you know, I've, I've planned all of my lessons up until Easter. I was like, well. How? <laughs> yeah, that's a good. Because <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't understand how that works. You know, I I, I literally plan day to day. Yes. I obviously have an idea where I'm going. Yes. But in terms of the actual lesson, uh, until the previous lesson has happened, I don't know what the next lesson is going to look yeah. like. Yeah. Um, so I think that's uh, yeah. But I, but I saw, I certainly see where he's coming from with that. And and then he, then he carried on. So he introduced his model. I don't know if you've come across this in his, his mastery blogs, and I assume it'll be in Mark's book as well. The teach, do, practice, behave, yeah. Um, yeah. and teach it. And he, he made the point that teaching there's no learning happening there. That's that's the this is kind of introducing a concept, maybe showing a few things. Then in the do phase, it, it may even be essentially t uh, students mimicking what the teacher's done. So still potentially no learning happening. Then we get to the practice phase where students start to develop fluency in working with an idea. And I like Mark's definition of fluency it's when you no longer need to give it uh, give attention to be able to perform mm -hmm. I like that yeah. but then it got interesting because that and I've, I've heard Mark say this say this before and it, it got a good reaction in the room 
he said it's not possible to behave mathematically with a novel idea. So this kind of rush to introduce a concept to students and then get them inquiring, problem solving and so on and so forth. He says that that process may actually take two years, mm. two years from an introduction to a concept to be able to actually do something kind of meaningful mathematically uh, with it. And Colin Foster's made a similar point about that if the problem solving demands are high, then the subject level knowledge needs needs to be low. Yeah. And again, this, this for me is, I don't think I've thought enough about this. No. I think certainly in the past I've been guilty of expecting students to do things too soon when they've only recently been introduced to a, an idea. Uh, as, as have I, yeah, and, and I think that that's certainly, it's quite recent after that change in my practice where I've tried to move away from that. I mean, you know, an example is, you know, I, I can think of lessons I've done where I've literally introduced Pythagoras' theorem to them that lesson, yep. and then by the end of the lesson, expect them to be solving these blooming multi-step yeah. Pythagoras problems which you know, <laughs> yeah. they're still trying to get their head around what a hypotenuse is they're not, yes. they're not ready yes. um, and, and, and inevitably um, they, they, are, they are not successful at that yeah. um, and, and the danger of that then is that in their head then they can't do Pythagoras yes, correct. when actually it was my fault really um, for giving them something that was far too challenging yes. too, too quickly um, so no, I, abso I absolutely. I mean, two years is big, though, isn't it? I mean, that that's takes really big. that's big in, in, um, implications for curriculum planning and yeah. schemes of work planning to to make sure you're bringing these things back in. And, and obviously constantly kind of revisiting the skills elements throughout those two years. It can't just be teach it and then we'll never mention Pythagoras again. And then two years later, here's an amazing problem on Pythagoras. So there's, there's significant implications yeah. if, if we're going to follow that through. And it will bring with it quite a lot of challenges. So you would need continuity of curriculum. Yes. You know, if, if you were going to build this in so that two years later you were expecting them to solve these much harder problems, you would have to make sure that two years later your curriculum is still the same. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, because, because, because otherwise yeah, very you, good you, you'd find yourself all over the place, wouldn't you? Um, and, and, and I think we've certainly noticed this on, in the research school. We've been doing a lot of um, work around sort of cognitive science. We have, yep. we have courses on metacognition and memory and things like that. Um, and, and out of that has come, has come the question of, of spacing and you know, how do you space practice. And, and I've seen all sorts of different models you know, where people use spreadsheets to make sure that they are... Um, you know, what they, they visit something for the first time and then they're planning to revisit that a couple of weeks later, a couple of months later, spaced homeworks. Or, yeah. and, and that is that needs someone to sit down sort of at the start of the year and really think quite carefully about what that's going to look like. If you were thinking about doing that across a, a, you know, a few years, that would be really hard to do. Absolutely. It doesn't mean it's not worth doing that. Um, and and, and that's, that's the point, isn't it? Um, what do you think of this, right? So, Mark, when he was on the podcast first time around, his big kind of quote was, "I've never marked a book in my life." Right? So that's. I, I think he's come up to. He's come up with another one to match this. You ready for this one? I am. Go on. So when he was, I think it was when he was head teacher, the first time his year 11s did a GCSE pass paper or paper was when he walked into the GCSE exam. Okay. Well. So he said, "A hundred percent of curriculum time is spent doing mathematics." And he said his kids walked out of that GCSE exam saying, when are we doing the real one? They thought it was like just a little yeah. joke because of how easy it was. Now, I'm going to have to dig deeper into that. I can't, I, I'm, well, I'm assuming it's true, but what do you think? I, would, you, would you send your year 11s in? They've never done a past, they've never done a past paper before. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I wouldn't because I value my job too much. Um, I, I just think... Um, Again, I, I'm not saying that. Yeah, I'm sure he had his reasons yeah, to say yeah, that yeah. I wasn't in the session, so I'm not. I'm not 100 sure what they were. Um, I personally think that students need 
that experience of what an exam feels mm. like but in a low stakes setting mm. i.e. something like a mock um, rather than going straight in there and doing the real thing um, I, I'm assuming and again I, I don't want to um, I don't really want to assume what, what Mark was thinking but I, I would guess that maybe he did he mean that they would have seen exam questions but I, not yes, a full I think, exam I think so yeah. his, his, his big thing that introduced it was 100% of curriculum time should be spent doing mathematics yeah. and I think his view was that sitting a past paper for possibly for just assessment purposes that was taken away from the teaching yeah. but I imagine he's introducing those exam questions yeah. maybe in isolation in small groups or something yeah which, which is different isn't it so so I mean I, yeah I mean that's something I do as part of my teaching anyway um, I, I, I will say one thing I've definitely pushed past papers later Me than too. I used to Me too. correct um, Me too. I, I think I used to think that it was valuable to do them all the way through year yes. 10 and I think I, I've changed on that now and, and, and it's not something we do anymore um, just because they're not ready and, and, and especially with the new curriculum, the way topics are linked together within a question mm. means that the you know being able to access even a full question sometimes is difficult, and and you just start to think, well, what actually is the point in them doing this? Yes. Um, so that's certainly. I mean, I mean, our students don't see a full paper until November of year eleven, which I think maybe I don't know. It still might be a bit early. I don't know, but. Uh, you know, the first time they do one being the real thing, um, no, not for me, not at the moment. I need, I need convincing on that. One, it's yeah. an interesting one. I mean, he's always provocative. Yeah. Um, next thing he comes up with, I've seen this slide before. He says, "Starters are dot dot dot." And the next word that comes up, uh, cover your ears if you've got young children listening. Bollocks. Starters are bollocks. And his reason being uh, the int the interrupt, the learning episode. Mm -hmm. If you're doing a mixed topic starter on five topics that are not related to what you're what you're studying at the moment, it interrupts that learning episode. Now bear in mind, I'm following in, in I'm, my sessions in the ne uh, next up in the same room as Mark. When I'm talking about low stakes quizzes, starting my lessons twice a week mm. with essentially things that interrupt the learning episode. Yeah. So I'm listening to this, thinking, "What are you going on about here?" But yeah, his 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 point there is he wants to kind of keep that flow going. That the the lesson starts where the previous lesson ended, and and so on and so forth. I mean, what's your take on starters? Well, again, I don't call them starters. Um, I used to when yeah. we had the three part lesson. Yes. We, we had to do the three part lesson. Um, but we do retrieval practice now, low stakes quizzes. That, that's what we start. Mm -hmm. We start every lesson with that right through the yes. whole school from year yep. seven to yep. eleven. Um, really, you know, trying to address things like the forgetting curve. Yes, and, you know, yes. with, with the evidence around things like spacing. Um, that's our, our rationale for doing that. Um, I suppose it doesn't have to be at the start of the lesson. Um, yes. it, it could be. It could be later on in the lesson. It could be at the end of the lesson, um, which is why we don't call it a starter. Um, for, for me, it depends. Um, I think it depends on, on, on your reason for doing it. Um, if you are doing a starter for the sake of doing a starter, it doesn't link to the learning, it isn't retrieval, it's not trying to latch onto any evidence from cognitive science or anything like that. It's just a settling task. Yes. That's a waste of time for me. Um, but because um, I'll, I'll talk later about Mark Lee Haynes' session, but he, he said we have 12,000 hours with kids from the start of, of uh, EYFS through to the end of year 11 which actually ain't that much. No. Uh, and I think, you know, to, to start giving up curriculum time to things that are really, you know, there's no meaning behind them whatsoever. Yes. We haven't got the time for that. But um, if there's a rationale behind it, then, um, yeah, I say we do it. It's, it's really interesting. And again, Mark put up another uh, statistic here that links into exactly what you've just said there, Simon. He, he uh, quoted a study that's um, that looked into 
how average performing and high performing schools um, or, or classes, how they spend their time in their maths lessons. Mm -hmm. um, and you put the table up here and we've got the average performing schools, eight minutes per lesson on the kind of transition, entry and settling kids down, high performing five minutes. Average performing school doing a what he calls a non-gain starter, so a starter not directly related to, to the learning. 12 minutes in the average, zero minutes in the high performing. Disruption was roughly the same and packing away uh, was and leaving the room was four minutes in the average performing, just one minute in the high performing. Now over the course of a lesson, that means the high performing uh, students are getting 49 minutes of mathematics, whereas the average performing are getting 31 minutes. And when you scale that up, um, that means uh, this is ridiculous. Over the course of, I think this may be, again, the same time scale as that you talked about from early years up to year 11, they get an additional 480 hours of mathematics teaching. That's if you can kind of cut out those things. So yeah, that was interesting. And the final thing I'll say, because I say Mark's coming on uh, the podcast, I'm gonna pick him up about this. <laughs> Started talking about bridging, the importance of bridging. Now that wasn't a term I was I was familiar with, but he, Mark was saying that say you're introducing um, a novel idea. Let's take Pythagoras to use your example. So my, my what I wouldn't do was now is do some kind of discovery task involving mm. Pythagoras. What I would do is is some kind of explicit instruction. I'd think really carefully how I'm going to explain Pythagoras with my examples, non-examples, and all this. But Mark says that what's actually a more effective thing to do is this idea of bridging, where you allow students to play around and come up with ideas, but <laughs> this got a good reaction. If, it's, if you say to a student, how do you think you work out the length of that diagonal, or give me some ideas here, if a student says an idea that's wrong, you say, no, that mm -hmm. is wrong. As opposed to what I've been guilty of in the past is kind of entertaining all these ideas, almost yeah. hunting down for the truth in them and every idea is equally as valid and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, but yeah, the question yeah. I asked him at lunch is, if you're going to be doing that, why don't you just tell the kids in the first place? So we're going to dig deeper into that. Yeah, I think, I think that will be interesting. Uh, I saw Mark give a, a, a similar talk actually uh, at the LaSalle Heads of Department Conference in Birmingham a little while ago. Um, really fascinating guy to listen to um, and I'll look forward to the podcast. Fantastic. Okay, so um, session two, what did you do, Sam? Um, so I went to see uh, Mark Lee Hayne um, and the it, it was quite a long session title, this one. It was everyone's banging on about a knowledge-rich curriculum. <laughs> I like but what does it actually mean and what does it look like in practice? Trips yeah. off the tongue. Yeah, it? Um, oh, was that, that title still going <laughs> on? No, that, that was yeah, all like, of the title. Wow. Okay. Um, so um, <laughs> I'd never heard Mark talk before, actually. Um, and, and it was really interesting. Um, he, um, he gave a little bit of information about his background. So he, he's been a head teacher. He set up uh, Bedford Free School, uh, which is now run by Stuart Locke. Um, and he's now part of an organisation called Parents and Teachers for Excellence. Um, and and they, he talked about the, the way he'd, he'd completely changed his views in the last five years um, on what a curriculum should look like. So he shared with us his, his original pr uh, proposal they put in for the DfE uh, for Bedford Free School. Um, which basically said that the curriculum was going to be uh, all about employability, it was going to be about personalised learning, it was going to be about engagement, um, and he shared that he, he'd, he'd heard, uh, and I think I've, I've heard about this before, uh, at Google, if you work for them, um, you spend four days a week working on whatever you've been told oh, yes. to work on, yes. and then you get one day a week to do whatever you yeah. want. Um, and some of their products have come out of that. So Gmail is a result of people on the day when they can do what they want, sort of playing around with an email system, um, which which is which is interesting. But he 
his original plan was to build that into his school. Oh, so right. they'd have one day a week. The kids would have one day a week on sort of student-led project-based oh, wow. learning. And this is a secondary school, um, isn't it? This is secondary yeah, school, yeah. yeah. So, so this was his original plan for the school. Um, but but then it, it, it was challenged, and, and he said it was a conversation with, with Nick Gibb, actually, that originally challenged it. Um, Nick asked him... Um, it was. I can't remember the, the full context of this, but the question Nick asked him was, yes, but would they know what the capital of Sudan was? Um, <laughs> basically, sort of indicating, yeah, okay, great, they've been doing all this, but have they actually learned yes, anything? Yeah. Um, and, and, and Mark said that was a bit of a sort of light bulb, bulb moment for him. Um, he, he spoke a lot about his, his own family during the session, and, and he, he said that during his early years at, at Bedford, they, they developed what they called the Sophie test, and Sophie's his daughter, one of his daughters, and the Sophie test was, you know, if Sophie was getting this at school, would I be happy with that? Oh, um, and, 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 and he said it's still called the Sophie test now at, at Bedford, even, even <laughs> though he's left, and, and to, her, uh, to her horror, Sophie actually now goes to that school, and, 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 but it's still referred to as the Sophie test by, by, by all of the staff. So I thought that was really interesting, uh, and he... Um, the, the phrase that, that Mark used was, was he wanted a curriculum that was going to enable kids to be the authors of the novel of their life. Um, oh, I like that. He, he's, he said he, he was talking about the fact that, um, you know, we don't decide what kids are going to do. Obviously, they decide that, but we need to give them this fuel to make sure that whatever they want to do, they've got the tools to go on to do it. Um, now, he, he, he set this up and, and, and he, he did this deliberately, obviously, because he, he said this about, you know, enable kids to be authors of the novels of their life. Everyone around the room was nodding. And then he said, oh, by the way, uh, that wasn't me that said that. That was Michael Gove. Uh, so so <laughs> you, you can imagine the, uh, the reaction at that point yes. when, when everyone had just agreed with the statement um, from, from Michael Gove. But he, he, he referred to, um, and, and he, he was talking a lot about the work of Claire Seeley, who was also here today, uh, and John Hutchinson, who, who again was also with us today. And uh, he said that they were far more expert around curriculum than he was. Uh, but he mentioned the fact that um, he, he'd done some work with, with, with Claire, and she used this, this great um, phrase where she said, early years in Key Stage 1, we're all about teaching them to write and not bite. So basically teaching them the, the skills of sort of life. You know, they have to be able to learn. They have to know basic yes. math. They have to know not to bite other children. You, know, they, you have to teach them those basic things. Key stage four is about exams, basically. Yes. Well, you know, like it, or, like yep, it or not. Yep. Key stage two and three, they refer to as the wonder years. Um, so, you know, we as schools are free to do pretty much whatever we want in key stage two and three. Um, and so it's our job to make sure that we are building this this really great curriculum uh, for our kids across key stage two uh, and three. Sequencing that you know coherent sequencing, uh, all these different kinds of things. He talked about um, he used the example of the EU because obviously there's been a big uh, Brexit march today down in London. Yes. Um, and and he, he talked about the fact that you, the knowledge that you need to actually understand the EU mm. is, is considerable. You need to know a, a lot about the history of Europe. You need to know all about the Second World War and why yes. Europe needed something yes. to sort of stabilise. You need to know about the geography of Europe. You need to know how all the different countries interact. You need to know about the politics. Um, and, and, and only if people have got all those different things in place can they actually start to have a proper understanding of what the EU is all about, why it exists. Um, so I, I thought it was it was fascinating. Um, and he ended really by talking about sort of um, how schools write their own curriculum, some tips for that, you know, really thinking carefully about that. Why are you teaching something? Why are you teaching A and not B? 
Um, it referred to the fact that if you um, go into a meeting where English teachers are talking about which books to read and which not to read, um, he said it's hilarious because they just fight and argue all the time. Yes. The same for historians, you know, which periods of history do we really want them to, to, to study? But he said those conversations are really necessary in schools. You've got to build that, you know, why are we doing this? What are we going to do this? How are we going to sequence it? Um, and and um, the, the, the last point he made was about, uh, and this is quite topical, all the different things that the newspapers say that schools should teach. He said schools have to think really carefully about what they actually put in their curriculum. So his organisation, uh, he said, they monitor the press and every time they see any kind of article like schools should teach this, uh, they make a note of it. He said they found 213 recently. Wow. Um, uh, schools should teach sarcasm, uh, teeth brushing, first aid, enterprise, <laughs> litter picking. He went on. Uh, but, but he said the really key questions around these things are, First of all, what, I mean, why should we teach this? Mm. Um, how much time do we actually have, and and, and, and what are we going to stop doing? Yes. And if we're going to teach all these different things that we're supposedly, you know, it will save society if we do, we're going to have to stop teaching something. Yes. What is it that you'd like us to stop? So, um, really, really fascinating session. Um, uh, and again, it was really, really interesting to hear somebody, a bit like yourself, Craig, who basically says, "I used to think these things." Um, I got it all wrong and now yeah. I think these things uh, and I think it's really nice to hear so, but, but if, if you ever get the chance to hear Mark speak he's a really uh, passionate speaker um, re really interesting guy to, to talk to again I was talking to him last night at the, at the meal uh, really interesting session a, a lot in there for schools to take away uh, in terms of curriculum planning that's fascinating that's brilliant mm -hmm. aren't they? Um, well session two I was doing my thing on, on low stakes quizzes I'll, um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that in uh, when I talk about Colin Foster's session but then we both were in Anne Watson's weren't we for, yeah, we uh, for session three we must be up to up to now yeah, that's so I'll, I'll talk um, just a, a little bit about this and then if there's anything that mm that you want to add so obviously I am um, probably best known for being a former podcast guest as I, as I like to say but obviously she's done a few other things in, in her career so obviously a legend of, of mathematics um, education and, and teaching and it was an interesting it was an interesting session it was a debut at, at research ed and like me she um, certainly finds it hard with the 40 minutes to, to, to uh, go in I think like her introduction it was about 10 minutes and yeah. she kept looking at a watch and, and all that kind of thing. It's a, it's a bit of an art form fitting it into these uh, these research ed yeah, time frames. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things that I, that I took out of this, and I should say, by the way, Anne would hate this with a passion because she hates the, the concept of a takeaway. She doesn't like the idea of this. She, as she says, she prefers to eat in. So, um, <laughs> But hopefully for people who couldn't make it to Anne's session, fingers crossed a couple of these things will be, will be of some use. So first off is the Hawthorne effect, which I, I heard of, but I've never really considered just how important this and that's when um, if, if you're trying something you tend to put extra effort in and almost force it to work mm. so you've got to be really careful when kind of objectively saying oh that worked because the thing was good versus I did everything humanly possible to make it work yeah. so I thought that was that was an interesting point that often yeah. gets missed with with these kind of interventions and different ideas um, I like this this is something I really want to dig a bit more into just um the importance of examples and the choices mm -hmm. so i was speaking to colin foster again last night um, about his trip to japan and he was saying that um, and this fascinated me there's no argument in japan let's say you're teaching fractions 
every teacher starts with the same fraction because they've decided this is a this is the best fraction to start yeah. with. And if you're doing, I don't know, simultaneous equations, everybody starts with the same pair of equations. It's whereas over here it's just our choice, isn't it? Or yeah. whatever whatever PowerPoint you've got off TES or whatever the textbook says or something. And Anne made a similar point. So she she described a course that she was running where they were talking about um, place value and subtraction, three digit subtraction, and they decided five hundred and twenty three was the best number to start with for an example and every digit had been argued discussed debated and was in there for a reason and again that i mean i don't know about you Sam, but that i don't I, I i've started putting more thought into that when i'm doing my intelligent practice sequences on variationtheory.com and, and I, I i know what that means that if you if you get that initial example wrong certainly when i'm writing a sequence of questions it almost leaves you nowhere to go whereas if you get it right you can take it in different directions but I mean, I don't put as much thought into this as I need to. How about yourself? No, I don't. Um, I, I come back to um, an, an example that I saw from... Um, it, it was when I was observing lessons a couple of years ago, and I think you mentioned it in your book, actually, um, where um, I was observing a teacher who hadn't thought really carefully in the way that Anne was talking about, about, yeah. about what numbers to use. Um, and, and she was discussing the mean of two numbers, and the two numbers were four and five. Um, and she explained that the mean of four and five was 4.5. Yeah. Um, so when the next one was 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 five and six, obviously the child thought it was five point six yeah. because all you're doing is putting yes. the decimal point yeah, between the two numbers, right. and that all came down to the numbers that have been chosen for that particular example. Yes. Uh, not blaming the teacher in any way no, for that, no, you know, no. it, it was it was just one of those things. But I think that 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 certainly made me think that. Uh, yeah, it really does matter, doesn't it? And you can you do it yourself sometimes, don't you? You write a question up on the board, and then you think, "Oh, hang on, no, not that one." And you yes, rub out a number, and yes. you don't really explain to the kids why you didn't choose that That's one. Right. That's Oh no, you, you've spotted something. And I think, yeah, it, it isn't some something that we give enough thought to. I like you have certainly put a lot more effort into choosing examples and using examples and working through them and comparing yes. things and, 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 and there's a lot of evidence around worked examples and the effectiveness of using them and, and, and the fact that we pro should probably use more than we think, especially yes. when we're dealing with, with novice learners. Um, but in terms of, of, of the level of detail Anne was talking about, I actually wanted her to explain why five two three yeah, is the me best because I was quite intrigued too. by that. It's like because I, I I couldn't I couldn't think of a, a of a reason, but clearly they gone through this thought process, which which meant that it was. Because you said as well, didn't you? Um, in a, in another workshop, they were talking about fractions as numbers, and they decided four and a half was the best one to start with. Then they spent all afternoon debating. Yeah. The, so again, I, that that that's my kind of conversation. Mm. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, that, yeah. The thought into that. And um, the other thing I I'll talk about then. I'll see if there's anything else um to add from you, Simon. Was was this idea of learners choosing their own examples and I know this is something that, that both Anne and John, uh, John Mason, Anne's husband are, are big into and, 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 and lots of people are um, and she, she used the, the example of if students are uh, you want to introduce students to rationalising thirds instead of uh, just starting by teaching them the algorithm or whatever or the relationship between brackets, if you give students uh, something like A plus root B in a bracket and C minus root D in a bracket and say to them, play around with values of A, B and C until those two brackets multiply out to give you an integer. And then that can almost lead students, and I'm reluctant to use this word, but to discover the rules that make brackets, uh, two brackets kind of essentially the thirds cancel out, which you need for, for rationalizing the denominator. And again, I, I'm, I'm all, I, three years ago, I'd have been saying that's amazing, but now I'm just a little bit wary of that approach, because what about the, is, 
some kids are going to get it, but what yeah. about the kids who that really confuses them? Can I then bring them back round and, and show them the right way? What about the kids who actually discover, because they make a mistake, something, a different relationship, yeah. and then we've got misconceptions in there? And I always just think to myself, can I justify not telling them as clearly and as carefully as I can how to do it, mm. why it works, and then if they don't understand it then, then let's try and dig into it and try and get to yeah. the bottom of it. But I just... Sometimes I'm concerned starting the initial teaching of a concept by handing over the control to students. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's me being ridiculous. What's what's your? No, I I I would agree with you on that one. I think I think um, I think there is value in that approach certainly. Um, and and like you said, when I first started teaching, that is probably the approach that I would have used. You know, similar. Um, trying to try to lead students into that that discovery, and and when it works, I have to say it, it is great, uh, you know. And and if they do um, go down the path that you that you really wanted them to do, my experience of it is that that doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, it sometimes happens. Certain students um, are really good at it, and they tend to be your most competent mathematicians. Yes. Uh, who've got that resilience to really keep going? I have to say, um, it's the kind of task that me, as uh, you know, a, a reasonably able mathematician, yeah. would really quite like to sit down and have a go at. Yeah. Um, but not when I was first learning how to do it. Um, and and I just think, like you say, I think I think there's a there's a danger there that what we're going to do is is confuse more children than we help mm. um, with that kind of approach. Now, um, I, I'm not I'm not saying it's wrong. Uh, I'm more than happy to accept different viewpoints. It's not how I would teach. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's certainly left me thinking, but yeah. And, and anything else from our session that, that I've missed out that, that you wanted to pick up on? Um, no, I, th I think you've, you've covered um, most of it. I, I would say um, some of the publications that Anne um, and, and John, her husband, have been um, part of, of the writing of um, have been sort of some of the cornerstones of my sort of mathematical... Um, teaching practice and I think in particular uh, there's a book called Questions and Prompts for Mathematical Thinking which yes. was an ATM publication which I still use um, has got some great little uh, sort of question stems in it and that kind of thing um, I think I think they're great um, and I know she was part of the team who wrote a book called Thinkers mm. um, which I have to say if I was going to choose one book um, that, that has changed my mathematics teaching. Sorry, Craig, it's not going to be yours. It's going to be Thinkers. Well, uh, yours we'll, is, we'll edit that it, out. It's, Don't a worry about that. it's a close second. <laughs> um, but I, I think Thinkers is a fantastic <laughs> book um, with loads of really great questioning techniques in it. Um, so no, it, it was it was a real. Um, I when I started putting the program together for Research Ed, uh, Anne Watson was one. I decided I want to put to put together a, a sort of math strand yes. that run throughout the day. So if a maths teacher came who was perhaps a little bit put off by some of the more academic sides of research yes. ed, they could they could sit and, and, and listen to maths people all day. Yes. Um, and, and, and Anne was a big part of my thinking in that because I felt that Anne, one of the things I really wanted to make sure of is that I had I had a real balance of viewpoints. Yes. Um, I think that's so important. I think your own bias can really get away, especially if you're a conference organiser. I think I think it's it, it can be really quite dangerous, um, and you would get slugged off on Twitter something something <laughs> yeah, wrong. That's right. um, but I think it's really important to have that balance. And, and what I wanted to make sure of is that not all of the speakers were people who I necessarily agreed with yes. on everything that they said and did. Um, and 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 I think I said I think that's important. Um, but no, I enjoyed that session. I did. And I should say as well. I mean, I tweeted this out when when she wrote it. But if you um, 
for, for listeners who haven't read Anne's, well, at the time of recording, most recent uh, piece of writing, which is on her and John's website, pmtheta.com, about kind of a, a reply or a response to the cognitive load literature and the studies and, and the way that they've been kind of translated into, into classroom practice. And, and Anne's point is read the small print. These studies, can we really generalize? Who have they been conducted on? What are the conditions? What can we really take from them? It's, it's, a, it's a challenging, for me anyway, it's a challenging um, piece of writing, but a fascinating one yeah. as well. So, so check that out. Right. Um, I, what did you do next? So I went to Colin Foster. Who right, you, who um, I do? went to Oliver Caviglioli. Oh, yeah. Dude, let's do that. Um, let's do now, now, Oliver, um, I have obviously seen his work because it pops up all over the place on Twitter. He's got a great website, ollicav.com. Like he seems, he seems um, to have a monopoly over yeah. uh, illustrated education books, right? He, he does, but quite rightly, because he, he is brilliant. Um, but I'd never heard him speak. Um, he, he, was, he was kind enough to deliver two sessions for us today. Um, so he did one on memory, which I, I didn't make it to, but his, ses his second session was on dual coding. I really wanted to go to this one. I know he's, he's putting a book together at the moment mm. on dual coding. Um, and and, and um, it, it was a fascinating talk, it really was. And he started out um, to sort of illustrate his point of, of, of the importance of dual coding. Um, he split the room into two, the front half and the back half. He got the back half to face the wrong way. So we all stared at the back wall while right. the front half obviously looked in, in the way you would normally look at right. the presentation at the front. Um, and then he started to describe some of the processes and the thinking and the research behind dual coding. Um, but what the people at the front of the room got was his explanation accompanied by his visuals. Yes. What the people at the back of the room got was the verbal explanation. Yes. Um, and he, he's, he said he would go into this in more depth in a longer session, as you've mentioned already, it was only 40 minutes. Yes. But the people at the back, myself included, were really quite confused. Yeah. Because it was all words. I mean, he, I love it. He, he was using a lot of jargon, which he said I make no apologies for because he thinks it's as beautiful as poetry, which I really <laughs> liked. Yeah, um, however, it really didn't help those of us about that that were, that were lost. The point being that those people at the front were understanding this better because they were linking his words to the visuals on the screen. Yes. And that, that you know, that's, that's a really nice point to make about about the importance of, of dual coding. He, he talked about the explanations that we give as teachers. Uh, and he said that when we are stood at the front uh, talking, um, he said those words aren't coming from our, our, our mouth, they're coming from our schema. We know how all these things link together. Um, and when we're talking to a class, we've got these visual images, we've got these mental images of what's going on, how it all links together. They haven't. Mm. Um, and to them, it's this string of words that they have to try and reassemble in their heads and inevitably don't reassemble it in the way that we intended. That's interesting. Um, and and he, he spoke of, 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 of a way around this being for us to provide visuals along with what we are saying. A really nice illustration of this, he, he put up this, this paragraph about the structure of, of, of an organisation. Um, it was all worded, um, it, it was all written in really simple language, there was nobody in the room that didn't understand it. Uh, but then he asked us questions like, um, who is the highest ranking person in the organisation? Which department has the most people? Which people are not involved in this particular project? And we couldn't answer it because it, 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 trying to pick those things out of this paragraph was quite difficult. Then he presented the same information um, in what looked like, it's like a hierarchical structure, so like a family tree type diagram. Yeah. And it just was blindingly obvious who was the most yes. um, experienced person, the highest ranking, who was involved, who wasn't involved. Uh, and again, his point there was that as teachers, if we're just if we're presenting 
text without without the visuals or words without visuals we are expecting kids to be able to put these things together and, and they can't and, and you know we couldn't as, as adults and you know relatively educated adults we, we couldn't do it um, so I thought that was 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 really really interesting um, he talks about the different channels the, the visual the verbal and how uh, there is no transfer between them um, he talked and, and this was really interesting I hadn't thought about it in this way before so he talked about the, the visual sketch pad that we have mm. um, can have parallel processing so we can see really quite complex structures visually but the auditory side of our working memory is is sequential so we, we have to take things into our auditory uh, side in the order that they are given to us yes. and we can't piece those together into anything oh, other that's than very interesting yeah absolutely fascinating it was um he ended with a few tips sort of things mm. teachers could do so he talked about things like graphic organizers helping drawing even imagining um he talked about the benefit of visuals so they help us to direct attention prior knowledge cognitive load all, all these different things um, and, and his four takeaways for, for the people in the audience were um, that, that when you are putting together any kind of document as a teacher, be it a, a, a piece of paper, you know, a worksheet or a PowerPoint or whatever, um, his first word was cut. So use only what you need and no more. Um, you know, the, the, the minimum you can do whilst getting your point across. He talked about chunking, don't make the reader do all the work was his phrase. So he talked about, you know, a lot of academic writing is written in these great long paragraphs. Yes. And, you know, actually, no, chunk it up, help them out. You yes. know, if, if it's something that's difficult, you can visually help them out by just chunking it up. Um, he talked about aligning things and how our brains really don't like it when things aren't lined up. Um, he mentioned the fact that all professional publications have a, a hidden grid underneath them. Um, and actually a lot of the stuff that he sees teachers put out there is really badly formatted, yes. which doesn't help. Uh, he, he told us to think about railway timetables, use that as a sort of uh, visual sort of stimulus when you're thinking about how to align things up right, um, which I found interesting. And his last one was restrain yourself, um, which I sometimes find hard to do. But, you know, really making sure that, that we are, are, are really sticking to the things that are important the things that matter but I, I thought it was a fascinating that session brilliant, yeah, so I've never heard him talk before really engaging speaker um, I know he's been a head teacher in the past and you can tell because he's got that authority yes. over the room uh, that head teachers tend to have um, and I certainly it was certainly went with our last session with Oliver because it because it was it was fascinating. And his book's going to be a must buy. That, Absolutely, it? yeah. Be, I'll have yeah. to get him on the podcast because his yeah. um, the book he co-wrote with the the learning scientists. I think it's called How We Learn or something like that. Understanding how we learn. Understanding yeah. Uh, yeah. like it's just it's a work of art. It's it a beautiful looking book, and and you're right. It's it's only when you see something like that and contrast it to a book that isn't as well designed mm. that you just realise how how much easier it makes to t it makes it to take in that information. Yeah. That's yeah. He's, um, I've, I've been lucky enough to hear him speak once at Research Ed would be and he, I was blown away by it but yeah I've, I've got to get him on the show it'll be interesting how much he can convey that stuff without the visuals because it's kind of almost the opposite of what he wants to do is a, well, is a kind of auditory uh, absolutely podcast. and there's an irony about me talking about this <laughs> yeah, right. because that is exactly you know, <laughs> it, 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 this, it right? is purely sequential yeah. <laughs> that's right good point good point right so I went to see Colin Foster now as I said this was kind of part two of my um my experience with Colin, because I had a massive chat with him last night and I loved every minute of it, is he's one of the nicest people in the world of education, Colin. Well, what I like about Colin is he's obviously super smart. I mean, when we were speaking last night, I must have been saying things and he must have been thinking, what the hell are you, like, come on. Um, so I was trying to talk about how I'm thinking about task design and stuff like that, but he's so nice. 
and he doesn't have any ego. Um, I, and that kind of really came across in his in, in his presentation. So as a, as a person, I, I think he's absolutely wonderful. And um, Colin spoke about understanding confidence assessment in the low stakes quizzing. So I was loving this mm -hmm. because I touched upon confidence. It's a big part of, of what I do with low stakes quizzing. It's a big part of what we do with mock exams now, getting kids to assign a confidence score after they finish their exam and so on. So Colin was sharing a research study he'd done into um, the effect of getting kids to assign confidence ratings to their answers and when they do low stakes quizzes. And it was fascinating this because what Colin does different to me is I just get the kids to put a score between naught and 10 of, of confidence. And then essentially when they mark it, they look at their highest confident errors first. And that, that's kind of the extent that, that I go into this. But Colin does something different. Colin introduces negative marking. So kids, kids do their answers, and then they put a score between naught and 10 as to how confident they are. And if they get that question right, and say they put a seven out of 10, they get positive seven marks. Mm. If they get that question wrong, they get negative seven marks. Okay. So out of a 10 question quiz, you can get anywhere between 100 or negative 100 right. for a score. Yeah. And the point Colin is trying to do there is that he wants to provide students with every incentive to be as honest as possible with their confidence mm. scores. So mm. if, you can, if, if you're really not confident, then you best give a low confidence rating, otherwise you're gonna be hit with a really, really negative rating. And he said what he's trying to do with this, he's trying to solve three problems. He's trying to, he's trying to solve guessing, and I thought this was really interesting. He made the point that he said, sometimes if a student says, I don't know, that is really, really important information. And he'd rather them say that than take a random guess at an answer. Yeah. He wants to know if they don't know, as opposed to they just say seven, and he doesn't know if they're sure it's seven or not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he also wants to solve overconfidence, and he wants to solve underconfidence. And I made the point in my session that if a student's overconfident, they'll think they don't need to put in work into certain topics because they mm. think they've got it nailed and if they're underconfident they'll try to put in too much they won't focus their attention on where it needs to be they'll be trying to revise every every topic if, if they're if they're not confident so his aim and i love this phrase he wants to get students better calibrated he wants mm. them a better matchup between what they think they know and what they actually do know yeah. and he thinks confidence is is a way to do this um so a couple of key things, and I really like this. He said, formative assessment breaks down if students are guessing and we don't know that they're guessing. Yeah. So I thought that was good. And it made yeah. me really think about my kind of diagnostic questions use in the classroom. Because I say to students, I'd rather you give me an answer than not give yeah. me an answer. Yeah. But if I'm getting a load of A's and all my kids are guessing that it's A, would I not be better off if they just didn't give me an answer? So, you know, it's really got me thinking about this. And I love that formative assessment breaks down if students are guessing and we don't know that they're guessing. Yeah. So I thought that was powerful. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed that one. Um, he said as well, you now this, this really got me thinking as well. He says, as teachers, we tend to encourage overconfidence. So we say to kids, it's always better to guess than leave something out. Yeah. And I've certainly said that. Yeah. Um, red, amber, green, and he, and he put a quote, red, amber, green cards, and he put a quote from a teacher saying, um, good, lots of greens, that's what I want to see. And again, it's encouraging this overconfidence. Mm -hmm. Another one, if you're not sure about this, just stay back at break and I'll help you out. So the kid's like, oh no, I am sure, sir, yeah, I am yeah, sure. Yeah. So it's again, this encouraging overconfidence mm. and he made the point that overconfidence isn't a good thing it's, mm. it's, it's not necessarily a good thing at all and he said also teachers we tend to reward uncertainty so he gave some dialogue from a teacher and it was fascinating this a kid said i don't know whether the answer to this one is seven or negative seven 
I'll go for seven. And the teacher went, good choice. Where, and that's encouraging them to, well, you're uncertain, but luckily you got it right. Yeah. So again, just, it really made me think that actually I need to communicate to my kids. If you don't know something, I need to know that you don't know as opposed to guessing it. And perhaps assigning these confidence scores is a really explicit way of, of doing it. And the results of Colin's study that he did, it was with, I think, maybe over 300 kids, something like that. Firstly, he found that students were pretty well calibrated um, between what they what they thought they knew and what they didn't know. And no, they understood the concept of confidence scores, so they, there was no barrier into actually putting these, these marks down and, and calculating their, their overall mark. Boys tended to be more confident than girls. Um, the students really liked it, doing these, uh, getting these negative marks, even if it meant they did bad with the scoring system. So mm. most kids actually enjoyed the process, and, and the students felt it made them think more about their answers. Mm. And the only thing I'll add is I do things, I, I don't do the negative marking, but I, I think it's a fantastic idea. I do things slightly different to, to Colin. In Colin's study, the kids did a question and then did their confidence score, did a question and did their confidence score. I get them to do all the questions first and then assign the confidence scores at the end and there are two reasons for this the first is it allows them to check their work so you have to go back over each yeah. question and they tend to pick up on daft mistakes but also I think your confidence to earlier questions can change the further you get down a mm -hmm. set of questions mm -hmm. when you start thinking oh actually no I want to change that answer and so on and so forth so yeah but I mean I don't know about you so and I, I'm I, I think this confidence is is a really kind of easy thing to implement for kids just to give a give a sense of, of how sure they are and how not sure they are but it seems to me there's real potential for big wins what, what's your take? No, absolutely and, and I think sometimes um, that those are the, are the really interesting things for us to focus on as teachers those things actually it isn't really going to take a big change in our practice Correct. to implement something like that we're not talking here about you can do that with your existing assessments you don't have to rewrite your assessments, yes. you know, all those different things. Yes. It is literally just about, about adding that extra dimension to it. I think um, what you said about, about getting the kids to think more carefully about their answers, I mean, if that's the only thing that yeah. comes out yeah. of that, to <laughs> that's, me, that's right. worth doing. You take it. Yeah. Um, I mean, how often do we say, um, you know, think about that answer, that can't be sensible. Yeah. And, and, and having a process whereby we almost force them to think Absolutely. about their answer um, sound, sounds great to me. Um, I think that's worthy of further exploration. It's not something I've done. Uh, I have used the confidence thing, um, but not in that way. Yes. Uh, and, I, and I think that's certain. That, that's, this is what I like about, about research, Ed, is, is that you often find out about these new studies. Um, really quite, you know, that probably hasn't finished long, you know, yeah, been long yeah, yeah, finished, absolutely. Sort of, and already we're finding out of it, about it by the person that actually <laughs> delivered it and exactly. giving us things that we potentially could use in our classroom um, quite quite easily. And it's, so, that's it, I mean, yeah. it's practical, isn't it? Mm. You can go, I can go away from that session thinking, well, I can try that tomorrow yeah. if I want to. Yeah. And that's one of the great things about Colin as well, because I'm pretty sure he has been a teacher. Yes, um, yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and I think that means that, you know, when people who have been teachers go into academia, they come at it from a different angle That's and you tend to get things out of their research that are a lot more teacher focused, practical. Uh, sometimes, you know, people who spent their whole career in academia can sometimes lose sight of, of, of what the teaching job is all about. Yeah, and right. I think that's one of the great things about people like Colin. He, he's absolutely on our side. Yes. Uh, and he gets it. Um, and and that's, that's great. Yeah, as you said, one of the nicest guys you'd meet. Fantastic. Well, we've got uh, just two more sessions to talk about. So we've mm -hmm. got we've got yours and then the final one I went to. So 
Sell me on the dream of this, Simon. Metacognition, right? Yeah, okay, so I, I obviously, as, as part of the research called Network, we work quite, low, quite closely with the Education Endowment Foundation, um, who, who are one of the organisations that, that run the research schools. Um, and um, recently, in the past few years, they've started writing guidance reports. Yes. Uh, what these guidance reports are is, is they basically, um, they do an evidence review, um, which um, is usually done by some academics in university that look at all the available evidence on a particular topic, um, they uh, produce a paper which is, is quite lengthy and quite weighty and not really suitable for, for teachers to, to use on an everyday kind of level. Um, but that, that pr provides the evidence that then goes to a panel who look at sort of writing a report around that particular topic uh, that will be more useful for teachers in the classroom. Uh, so there was a maths one. I, I was involved um, with the... Um, the sort of uh, final panel panel sessions for the for the key stage two or three maths report that came out just over a year ago now, um, and last year um, EEF put together one on metacognition and self regulated learning. Um, the evidence review was done by Daniel Merce before he went to Ofsted um, at the University of Southampton, and then the report itself was written uh, by a team, but primarily by Alex Quigley uh, when he was at Huntingdon School before he became um, a full time member of the EEF. Um, and 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 this is it's a really fascinating topic because. Um, for a long time, metacognition has been in the spotlight. In the EF toolkit, it's, it's one of the highest mm. things. It's just under feedback in terms of what the evidence says is effective. But a lot of people don't really know what it is. And it's a bit of a buzzword, isn't it? <clears throat> it absolutely everyone's is. Chat, yeah. Everyone's chatting it, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And, 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 and it, it, you know, it's had loads of hits on the EF website where they do all kinds of analysis. It comes out top. Um, so they decided they, they really needed something that was going to help teachers put this into mm, practice. Yes, yeah. Now, with, I'm not going to go into great detail on the report, but basically what I did in my session is, is talk through a few of the recommendations. Um, one of the things that comes out quite strongly is, is this idea of a cycle, and, and we talk about uh, metacognitive thinking involving planning, monitoring and evaluating. So um, when you are approaching the task, you know, planning it out properly as you are going through it, how am I doing? Is there anything I need to change? That kind of thing. And then at the end, uh, reflecting on that, evaluating, has it worked? That kind of thing. And trying to get this kind of thinking um, into our students' sort of everyday practice, no matter what subject they are, yes. they are part of. Um, just, just on that, actually, there is, there is evidence that metacognition um, is subject-specific. So if we want students to act metacognitively in maths, it's going to look different to English. It's right, going to look different. Right. It's no generic skills. No, and no. so we, 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 we want to move away from things like thinking skills lessons, learning to learn ah, lessons, right. because yes. that isn't really where we should be looking. It needs to be built into everyday classroom teaching. That's interesting. Uh, one of the things that comes out in the recommendations is around modelling. Um, so, um, and, and we're getting more and more evidence on modelling as being a really effective strategy. I think one of the problems with that is that teachers say, well, yeah, I do that. Uh, but actually, it's about unpicking, you know, what is effective about modelling. So things like teachers modelling their own thought process. Yes, this is yes. something I've done a lot of recently. Um, when I'm going through things like exam questions with year 11, you know, the five, six markers, rather than just showing them how to do mm. it, I'm also telling them what I am thinking. Yes. How do I know this is a Pythagoras question? Well, look, I can see a triangle, yes. I can see it's right. You know, no, all those things Absolutely. that it's subconscious to me, uh, it happens automatically, um, but they're not there yet, and so I need to spell that out to them in great detail. And that kind of live modelling um, um, is, is one of the things that I talked about um, in, in my session uh, this afternoon. Um, Alex Quigley also talks about the Goldilocks level of challenge, and I know you've mentioned challenge already today. Um, 
not too easy, not too yes. hard, but just about right. It ah, is nice, like loving that. hard to do that, though, yeah. isn't it? That's the problem, yeah. you know, uh, because what's challenging for one child of course might be easy for another, and, and getting that sort of sweet spot of challenge um, is is really quite difficult. Um, one one of the points I, I kept coming back to really though was this idea that um, if we're going to teach kids metacognitive strategies, we need to do it explicitly. We need to show them how to do it because um, what the evidence suggests is that there will be highly effective learners who figure this stuff out for themselves right okay um you know we can all think of those kids in our classes who are really great learners yes and we can all say what it is that they do you know they plan out the time they know all these things yeah, they have all these yeah. strategies they yeah. know themselves really well uh, knowledge of self is what the report uh, refers to um with that um and, and they are, are, they appear to be really effective learners but actually we can unpick what it is that's making them really effective and those kids that don't work out those things we should tell them what they are yeah and we should good. help them to develop them and model it to so we can Absolutely. see what it is yeah that's um, good so it, it it's there's a lot of work to do around metacognition there's a research school we're, we're delivering a training course at the moment on metacognition it's been our biggest seller because like you say it's a buzzword people mm. want to know more about it it's not easy to do um and it requires a, a bit of a change in mindset from teachers um, but with such a strong evidence base behind it in terms of effectiveness, I think um, it, it's something that, that we increasingly need to look at. But yeah, um, uh, it, the session seemed to go down all right. That <laughs> There was a room full, which I was happy with. Yeah, I, was on, yeah, yeah. I, I did say at the start of my session, though, because um, as you can probably hear, my voice is, is yes, shot because oh, I had such like a busy it. day. But um, why on earth did I put myself on last? Yeah, I don't know what. <laughs> was yeah. like, what was I thinking? I don't know what. Um, yeah, so but it was it was I really enjoyed it, and and, and um, we feel like we're learning a lot as a research school about metacognition. And if um, we had someone listening who wants to kind of just make a start, would you say that's the best thing to do? Just like this modelling and art and uh, kind of voicing your thought processes. I, I think it's a good place to start. I, th I would recommend the the Avalok on the EF website. Get a copy of the guidance report. It's freely available to download. Uh, it, it's not a huge document, mm. sort of twenty to thirty pages. Really um, well written, dead easy to to read. You know, it's not really in in dead complex language. And it does provide some practical uh, suggestions for ways to start to incorporate these strategies. What I would say is don't try and do it all at once yeah. because that would be crazy. The yes. seven recommendations, pick one thing, like you say, maybe the modelling one, but that's, that's one of the recommendations. Pick that, work at that, you know, nail that, and then start thinking about other things. Because I think with any of these things, the worst, things that we, the worst thing we can do... Um, is to try and implement it all straight Absolutely. away. Um, I mentioned that in my, in my closing remarks at the end of the conference today. Um, I think we have a danger as, as teachers to be magpies. You know, yes. We go to a conference, yeah, yeah. I've got 10 great ideas, yeah. I'm going to do them all in the classroom Correct. one day. Okay, fine, but you'll probably find that in six months' time you're not doing any of them yeah, anymore. And if it doesn't work, you don't know which one. Exactly. You can't get to the, the nub of the problem. Exactly. So really carefully thinking about, you know, okay, I'm going to change this. Uh, I'm going to work really hard at changing this, um, and, and 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 you know, and then after I've I've nailed that, and and you know, I either change it or ditch it or carry on with it depending on its success, then maybe try and change something else. But yeah, uh, I I enjoyed this session. It sounds sounds absolutely fascinating, that mate. Um, so final one. So whilst you were talking metacognition, I was I was in with Ben. So Ben Gordon, who'll be familiar to to, to Twitter users, he's I think he's Mr. Gordon, Mr. Maths Gordon, something, like, something that. like that. Yeah, you're, you're yeah. fine. You're fine. Then. And I'm fuming at I'm fuming at Ben because um, 
Ben has what I have been long after, and you've mentioned Oli Cav. Yeah. Oli Cav has drawn, so all the big names in education, he's, he, he draws little icons for them, and Ben's yeah. got his own flipping one. Yeah. Like, I've had a, what, what do I have to do to get one of these things? And how's he got one? So I don't know whether he's just allowed like one from the northwest of England or something. Only one person can get them and Ben's got it. So I'm absolutely fuming. If you're that. listening, Oliver. Yeah. Um, you know. Actually, if you want to come on this podcast to plug this book, I'll tell you now, get that icon being drawn. So um, Ben was talking about uh, Barack Rosenshine's principles um, of instruction and crucially how he's used them in his school context. Now, a bit of background. Um, ben has moved to a new school this year. Um, he is assistant head, I think, and I think it's a, a school in quite challenging circumstances. And, he sh- and Ben is a ve- he's a very enthusiastic guy. He's um, he reads a lot. He's he's very engaged on Twitter. He likes to throw challenges out to people and so on and so forth. And he's he's adopted Barack Rosenstein's principles to and trying to bring in a whole school approach. And it was kind of a reflective session about about what strategies he's brought in and so on and so forth. So I just want to share a couple of these um, because I I think I'm going to have to get Ben Ben on the show. I think um, it's fascinating to hear people try these things in challenging circumstances Mm. because that's when we know whether whether they work or not. So first thing that that really struck me was he shared this collaborative planning tool, which was a way for teachers to kind of work together to start thinking about sequences of examples and, and, and ultimately planning lessons. And he had this grid, which was um, types of examples. And if we all picture this, um, if you imagine a cross, a kind of set of axes, and going up the y-axis, we had complex at the top and kind of simple at the bottom. And then left to right on the x-axis, we have typical to non-typical. And he shared a series of examples um, for calculating the mean from a frequency table. So something that would be typical and simple would be discrete data where you got the frequency. So again, the bog standard ones. But then as we move across, we get something that's still simple, but perhaps a bit less typical. So this time, how about you give them the frequency table, but you change the orientation. So instead of it going down, it goes across. So it's a horizontal frequency table. And then as we go to really non-typical, what about if we give students a frequency table? Well, this time let's swap the order of the columns. So actually frequency comes first mm-hmm. and the variable comes second. So, and then again, there's another one that might be a little bit more complex and non-typical. Let's ask them to calculate the mean, but not give it in a table, give it in a bar chart or in a cumulative frequency mm-hmm. diagram. So just thinking about the range of examples and this, this tool, this complex to simple, typical to non-typical, seems to me quite a sensible structure. If you can get something in each quadrant, then you, you're kind of covering a wide range of examples. So I, I really enjoyed that. And then he started talking about some speci- uh, more specific principles. So we've got the setup principle. And he said here that if you're using examples and non-examples, make sure as much is consistent as possible. So he said, if you're trying to explain to students what a perpendicular height is, don't use a um, tra- two trapeziums and then use a trapezium and a triangle. Make sure that your example, the shape in your example, is the same as the shape in your non-example. So students, there's not too much changing and they can focus their attention on one thing. And again, it sounds straightforward, but um, I need to do it more consistently. Now, what about this, Simon? Let me sell you on the dream for this. The sameness principle. Okay. Have you come across this? No, I don't right? think you ready I right? So imagine you're teaching um, multiplying out single brackets, mm. right? and the example you want to do is um, 2y brackets y plus 4. Yeah. Okay, 2y y plus 4. Well, Ben said, instead of just showing them 2y y plus 4, show them four different versions of that same question. So he's got expand 2y brackets y plus 4. On the same side, multiply out 2y y plus 4. Write as a power of y 
2y, y plus 4. And then my favourite one, write 2y brackets y plus 4 in the form a y to the y mm. squared plus b y. Yeah. And he said, like, take that latter one, stuff like that comes up in the exam all the time, especially like completing the square, writing this form. Yeah. And I say to kids, well, it just means expand the brackets. But if the first time they're seeing that is in the exam, then there's trouble. Absolutely. So presenting the same example, but the different forms it could be asked, mm. I just thought was quite nice. And that's really like interesting. And, and again, so simple to do and, and, and so obvious when you say it like that. I think I've had that exact same same conversation with kids. You know, it's expanding the brackets. Exactly. But it doesn't say expand, and every question we've ever seen exactly. says expand. Exactly. So why, why would they know? I like that and and last one um, I'll end on this one um, no opt out so this is um, Doug Lemov the yeah. former podcast guest talked about this but what, what was nice here Ben shared a script so I'm going to read this I'm going to mm. read this out as a script so um, so imagine with teacher to student so teacher Alex what is a prime number student I don't know teacher a prime number is a whole number with exactly two factors. Say it again, students. A prime number is a whole number with exactly two factors. But it doesn't stop there. Teacher, two is a prime number. It only has two factors, one and two. Can you give me another prime number? Student, is seven a prime number? Teacher, yes, well done. Can you explain why? Because it only has, because it has exactly two factors. Now again, it still doesn't stop there. Mm. Teacher, excellent. Give me a non-example of a prime number and explain why it is not prime. Student, four is not prime because two goes into it. And yet it still doesn't stop there. Teacher, four is not prime because it does not have exactly two yeah. factors. Say it again. Student, four is not prime because it does not have exactly two factors. Teacher smiles. Now what I like about that is, it's a, it's a script, it's a yeah. strategy that if a child says, I don't know, in the past I just kind of move on or yeah, say something yeah. like, well, well, anybody else know? Can anybody else help Josh out? But if kids learn that actually, I don't know. It means that this is going to happen yeah, to yeah, yeah. One, if they say don't know, they actually don't know. Mm -hmm. They're not just kind of being lazy. And two, we've somewhere to go with it. Yeah. So I, I like this. And I really like the way he turned it back to the definition as well. So when he, he gave him actually a, a valid reason yes. for that not being a prime, but he didn't give him the reason he wanted. That's right. So the standards were there. Absolutely. It was lovely that. And yeah. what I liked about this session, I mean, Ben, he, he crammed so much, so, so much into it. What I like is... He's trying, and I really hope he succeeds, to come up with these things that can be consistent across yeah. different subjects. He talked a lot about a shared language, so he would say to kids, no opt-out. He'd say to kids, the same as principals. Yeah. The, the kids know it, the staff know it, and that's the only way to make these yes. things happen. That's off. really interesting, actually, sharing these things with the kids. Um, I, I think sometimes, you know, we um, come up with these strategies that we're going to use, you know, example problem pairs something yeah. like that yeah do we actually tell the kids why we use an example problem pairs uh why not you know yeah, you know exactly. it explains i know because um, because you were in our school yesterday um craig doing a do, doing a, a day of cpd for us and you talked about silent teacher um you know if you're going to use silent teacher explain to the kids i'm going to use this different this different way this is why i'm doing Absolutely. it and, and i think that we don't do enough of that um because I think I think that's really interesting, and, and it was nice to hear sort of uh, you know of, of Ben saying those things as well. Actually, no, I, I share these strategies with the kids, and I explain why I'm doing it. Um, yeah, uh, Rose and Child's principal instruction is is I am really sad. I do have a favourite research paper, and that is it. That's it. Um, it's it, it is absolutely my favourite because I, I I think it's just 
it's so actionable and yes. it's so practical. Yes. And actually, it, it's so blooming obvious. Yes. But it really um, gives you a, like a common language That's around right. teaching and learning. And I think it's such a useful paper. Um, obviously, not just for maths, but for, but, for, but for all teachers. That's right. And Tom Sherrington's got a book coming out yeah. about it, and it'll be on the podcast to talk about that book in the near future. Well, Simon, we've done it. You've survived the day, and you've survived the podcast. It's, it's an epic challenge, isn't it? It, it? it is. It's been a long day. I've loved every minute of it, um, but I'll sleep well tonight. You will. You will. Well, <laughs> will we be back next year? I f- Fingers crossed, I hope so, because I, I, I mean, I love the Research Ed events, but as you say, we're from the northwest. We're yeah. we're in the northwest. It's an area that often um, it's it's hard to get to. Yeah. So it's it's hard to kind of a, a attract the numbers and the kind of quality. Yeah. But again, you you've pulled it off, and it's it's a high profile event. And to have one of, if not the biggest regional research ed event in Blackpool, Lancashire, it's something you should be very proud of, Simon. Oh, so. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, and same time again next year. Let's yeah. do it. Okay. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.